We're going to read from Acts chapter 9, a few verses from Acts chapter 9. And uh, from verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, that's uh, Saul, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Amen. Now this uh, session at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon, after all that we've been through, is uh, is a challenge, um, not so much for me as it is for you. I'm reminded of uh, the late George Burns, the comedian, who said, in a context similar to this, if you're going to make it through, it's important that number one, you have a good introduction, and that you have a good conclusion, and then that you try and keep the two of them as close together as you possibly can. <laughs> Because some of you are staggering under the weight of uh, material, not uh, intellectual material, biblical material, but some of those trucks. Um, I, saw, I saw some of you. <clears throat> and uh, and uh, yes, it's just beginning to settle, settle nicely right around now. And uh, so you might have to just sit up a little uh, straighter in these most uncomfortable pews. And uh, th- they, will prob- they will probably help you. Um, the angle of approach in that pew was never intended for sermons that lasted more than about 11 minutes, but that's, that's by the way. And you can't pass us off with those miserable little cushions either. They're not, they're not very good at all. So. Now, the verse to which I would like to draw your attention, having spoken so warmly of this beautiful building, is, uh, is the 31st verse of Acts chapter 9. If you have a King James Version with you, which I will be surprised about, uh, the, the, the way in which uh, it reads in the King James Version establishes a principle that I want for us to note, and I'll come to that in just a moment. This uh, particular verse is uh, the second of six, or uh, the third of seven, if we include uh, Acts chapter 2:47, uh, of summary statements that you know uh, Luke employs as he goes through the Acts. And this particular verse is not a verse that I have found gets a great deal of attention from the commentators. It's hardly surprising as you read it. You say, well, it's fairly straightforward. But I want us to try and deal with it this afternoon in light of what has already been said and unearthed for us and in light of what is yet to come. 
It, because it contains a principle that I think is very important for us to understand. Unless we subscribe to a view of membership, which is sort of um, very exclusive, us for, no more, shut the door. Unless we have a view of membership that is just like that, that we want to prevent really anybody else joining, then we recognize that for a vibrant, meaningful engagement of God's people, then inevitably there will be growth. And in determining how that multiplication happens, this particular verse gives us not the whole story, but gives us a helpful indication. And at heart, a necessary condition of multiplication is edification. Now, we said in our uh, Q&A just, just now, someone pointed out that the fact that something is described in the Acts of the Apostles does not necessarily mean that it is prescribed. And therefore, we have to have care as we're dealing with this stuff. Um, but although we are far removed, both historically and geographically, from the scene and the context that's described here by Luke, the work of God's Spirit through God's Word in God's people is a timeless work. And there are principles of God's activity in and through His people which transcend cultures and time and so on. Now before we look at the verse itself, let's just remind ourselves of the story so far. The story so far is dramatic and fast-paced. The outpouring of the Spirit of God on Pentecost, resulting in Peter's amazing sermon, uh, the uh, conversion of 3,000 folks or so who are then baptized. Uh, Peter and John engaging in their apostolic ministry are involved in the healing of a lame beggar. As a result of that, they are arrested, then they're imprisoned, then they're released, and when the church prays for them in their imprisonment, it doesn't pray that they will be freed from further persecution, but that they will be enabled by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the Word of God with boldness. Uh, they just assume that the ministry of this story of Jesus, as it goes on, will be confronted on all kinds of levels by the opposition of the evil one. And that's exactly what we read. Opposition from the outside is then followed by corruption from the inside. And uh, the straightforward approach through the front door by the evil one is resisted. And now through the back door he comes in the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. No sooner have we dealt with that than we have disruption from within related to the Meals on Wheels program. And when you get a bunch, a bunch of ladies arguing with one another about where they came from and who got their sandwiches on Tuesday when they were supposed to get them on Monday, it's a recipe for disaster. And as a result of that, uh, the, the apostles determined that uh, they, they're not too big for uh, the tasks of serving tables, but their priority is something different. Stephen is martyred. Uh, the church has been battered and scattered. And then, as we were rehearsing in Acts chapter 8, you have that fantastic story uh, of the conversion of Denzel Washington when he runs into Dustin Hoffman. And uh, it's uh, just a wonderful, wonderful picture of the activity of God. This beautiful man in his chariot reading uh, the book that he picked up from the Nine Marks Conference, or the equivalent of, 
running into this fascinating little Jewish man who tells him this amazing story that answers all of his questions. And then you get to the 31st verse of Acts chapter 9. Breathless, perspiring, and all we've done is read it. And then it says, So the church, singular, representative of these communities and fellowships of God's people in these various geographical regions, the church had peace. Now, it's going to be very easy for you to follow this because all you're going to do is follow the text. And so I wrote down, it's genius actually, the church had peace. And then I underlined it. <laughs> Point one. <laughs> See, it's, this stuff is not hard. Not if you have a Bible. So, the church then had an opportunity to catch its corporate breath. That's what Luke is telling us. They were, they were given, if you like, a kind of Sabbath. An opportunity, like when you do hill walking, you come to various points where there has obviously been people before you who have taken a moment to rest. And it just seems so right because as you turn and look back from where, to where you've been, uh, you survey the territory already covered, and then you have the opportunity to look forward to all that lies ahead. And God, by His Spirit, gives to His people in this immediate context, in this historical environment, the opportunity to do just that. What an amazing contrast with all that had gone before. And what a challenge is now entrusted to them. Because it has become apparent that they have been able to deal with all of the frantic activity that has led up to this. But it is one thing to engage in the battles of the day. But how do you do in the calm? Calvin commenting on this says, This peace was no ordinary blessing. And then by application to today, or his day, he writes... Let us not abuse external peace in feasting and idleness, but encourage ourselves to make progress in godliness while we can. One of the things that is an indication of a church's character is when things are going well, when you are facing opposition from out without and perhaps disruption from within and you have to, your whole body the whole mechanism of the body is, 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 is chasing to the points of difficulty that's one thing but what happens when those things are not there the church had peace and then secondly you will notice that it also had a building program it, 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 not the building program that most of us like to talk about, not a physical structure, but a spiritual reality. It was being built up, oikodomia. It was, in the King James Version, it says, and was edified. Okay, so this activity that was taking place in this time of peace was a building activity. Remember, Peter says to those to whom he writes, you yourselves, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. And these congregations of God's people 
were both on the receiving end of this, and as we'll see in a moment, were engaged in the process themselves. As a boy growing up in Scotland, I had the privilege of being uh, cared for by lots of people who taught me a lot of theology just with little simple songs. And one that comes to mind as I think of this being edified or built up uh, went like this. I don't know if it came here. We are building day by day as the moments pass away a temple that this world cannot see. And every victory won by grace will be sure to find a place in that building for eternity. Which, of course, is in keeping with the promise of Jesus, I will build my church. And in keeping with the priority of the apostles, who, as we just referred to it in Acts chapter 6, determined that in terms of spiritual organization, in terms of the gifting and calling upon their lives, they said, we will give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Because it was going to be in the realm of prayer and the ministry of the Word that the church was going to be edified, that it was going to be built up. And that's why at the end of Acts chapter 2, before the essentially summary statement of verse 47, we read of them being devoted to the teaching and to the fellowship and to the worship and so on. Now, if you're prepared to step out of the narrative in Acts for just a moment and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, let's just recognize that when we fast forward to Ephesians 4, then we discover that part of the spillage, if you like, of the ascension, the, the, the overflow of the reality of the ascension, that Christ is an ascended king, part of that is in the gifts that have spilled out to men. And as you know, in the list of those gifts, there is the privileged responsibility of the pastor and the teacher. And God has chosen to edify his saints. It's the same verb again, oikodomia there in Ephesians 4, to edify his saints, to build his people up by the instrumentality of the pastor and the teacher. Therefore, if you're having a bad week, if you're looking forward to Sunday with a measure of trepidation, if you've been feeling down on yourself, then you can do this before you go to bed at night, tonight. You can, you can kneel to say your prayers and you say, Thank you, Father, and it is a mystery to me, Father, but you have given me as a gift, as a gift to your people. And you have entrusted me with the responsibilities of caring for these people in light of all the things we've been thinking about over these last 36 hours. And I thank you that although I live in an age of anti-clericalism, that you have made me this. I was saying yesterday morning that the anti-clericalism of, uh, of our day is nothing new. And I was reminding the students of uh, the insights of uh, Mark Twain when in Huckleberry Finn, uh, 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 Huck gets in that uh, uh, really complicated situation with Joanna as he begins to tell lies about the church and his uncle and who's in the pulpit and so on. And I wonder, do you know that little bit of dialogue where he says, you know, there are lots of, there are lots of ministers needed in a church. And uh, she, Joanna says, why would they need more than one? 
And he says, well, what, to preach for a king? I never saw such a girl as you. You don't have any fewer than 17 preachers. 17, she says, my word. Why? I wouldn't be able to sit there and listen to them all, even if it did mean I couldn't go to heaven. It must take them a whole week to finish the service. Huck says, shucks, they don't all preach on the same day, unlike this. They don't all preach on the same day. <laughs> Only one of them does. Well, then what do the rest of them do? Oh, says Huck, not much. They sit around, pass the collection, play that kind of stuff. But usually they don't do anything. Well, then what are they there for? Why? They're there for style. <laughs> don't you know nothing? I don't know about you, but it's, it's not real classy being a pastor and a teacher. I mean, I don't find it so. I mean, when you, you get yourself on the plane and, you know, you're dreading it, they're going to say, and so what is it exactly you do? You're like, I'm a pastor. And the guy, the guy immediately goes in his bag and he takes out those Bose earphones and puts them right on the side of his head. Which is kind of like an, ele an electronic raspberry. Like, thank you, but uh, it's been nice meeting you and I'll hopefully never see you again. But in that climate, we have to keep reminding ourselves, not in a sense of self-aggrandizement, but because we recognize the immense privilege and the solemn the solemn responsibility that attaches to us because our first and our principal duty is to feed the flock that is under our care by faithful and diligent teaching of the Bible because God has promised that according to that process, his people will be built up. And when we think about what we do and what our task is, our primary aim Sunday by Sunday in seeing membership established and defined and guided and so on, our primary aim is not simply to ensure that our congregations have an increased understanding of passages of the Bible. We hope they will. But our task is not that they simply have an increased understanding of the Bible with a few practical ideas before they go home for how they can apply it. But rather, our aim is that the text will be proclaimed in such a way that we and they will encounter God himself in a life-shaping way. That there is an encounter with Almighty God because He has deigned to use the voice of a mere man in order to convey His eternal truth. And by that mechanism, those who are under that care are then being built up. And that's why we love the opportunity to be in each other's company because we learn from one another. So that we realize that what God had purposed, He has provided. He promised, didn't he, that there would be teachers according to his own heart who would feed the flock with knowledge and understanding. Not simply the disbursement of information, but an understanding and also a heart that is engaged. So, we seek to teach the Bible candidly, with no concealment of the truth, and clearly, with no obscurity of expression, and confidently, with no fear of of the consequences. 
Because when the ministry of the Word of God is neglected, there is spiritual malnutrition and there is doctrinal illiteracy. I wonder if you've noted much of it around you in these days. John Owen, when he urged the pastors in his day to give themselves to what he referred to as the effective performance of their primary pastoral duty, he said, amongst other things, it demands this. And I'm just going to tell you what they were, uh, and uh, you can follow up on your own. One, a clear, sound, comprehensive knowledge of the gospel. Two, a love of the truth so learned and so understood. Three, an avoidance of novel opinions, idle curiosity, and vain conceit. Four, the ability to discern and disprove adversaries of the truth. Five, solid confirmation of the central truths of the gospel. Six, a diligent watch over the flock. Seven, a partnership with like-minded pastors of other churches. Huge responsibility. Who is sufficient for these things? And yet in the economy of God, He has entrusted us. And these members, as we just have been thinking, are under our care. Not our exclusive care, but under our care nevertheless. Now, so there is, if you like, a passive element in this process of edification as it relates to the congregation, but they themselves are also involved. And in Ephesians 4, uh, towards the middle of the chapter, he, Paul says to them, And uh, as you speak the truth in love, growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped... Now, here's the phraseology. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it, same verb again, builds itself up in love. Now, you haven't forgotten where we were. The church had peace, and now we're noticing this process of building. The congregation is not simply passive. It's the responsibility of every true believer to seek out this kind of fellowship. That's the emphasis on membership, I think. And when you think about air travel, you will remember just how important it is uh, when they give you that little speech about in the unlikely event of, uh, of a loss of cabin pressure, the oxygen masks will come down from the ceiling. And, um, and you remember the whole process. We don't need to go into it. But, it and they, but they always say, if you are traveling with someone who needs your assistance... Make sure you put your own mask on first. That makes perfect sense. Because if you've copped it, you're not going to be able to help your granny get her mask on. So make sure that you've got the intake in order that you can help. Okay, now apply that. Who are, who are these individualists roaming around America who believe somehow or another that they don't have to be engaged in a local church? That they can fly by on their own? That they don't have to be a member. I mean, we're going to have a membership class for about 12 of you that identified yourself very bravely earlier in the day, you know. We, we, we might have to start a new church and have you join it before you leave. Because you're, you're clearly in the wrong. I know that because Mark said it earlier today. Something about, <laughs> something about sin if, because of Hebrews 10, 25. And I, and I, I agree. Now... 
let's just say a word to the local congregations because some of your congregations, you're not pastors. Let's acknowledge this together. The local church, the local church is the Lord Jesus Christ's special provision for his people for fellowship, discipline, worship, instruction, and service. Furthermore, the New Testament takes it for granted that every Christian will be joined with other Christians in the membership of a local congregation. Also, the metaphors of the church, as a flock, as a body, as a household, or as a building, only make sense when we are joined together in the fellowship of the church. Therefore, we have every legitimate right to say to those who are asking about these things and wondering about them, if you are going to be built up as God intends, it is imperative that you are under the tutelage of God's word, that you are engaged in the fellowship of God's people. And when they say to us, well then, what, 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 what is your guidance for us? We'll tell them at least this. Number one, determine in giving yourself to membership in a church, determine to discover and fulfill your God-given part. Ephesians 4, 16 and 17, as each one did its work. Okay? Determine to discover and fulfill your God-given part. If you don't know how to do that, ask one of the elders. Two, aim at being a healthy member of the body. Three, get your priorities right and check them from time to time. Four, give generously, regularly, and systematically to God in your local church. Five, respect and support your spiritual leaders. Six, clothe yourself with humility and expect to serve rather than to be served and in it all make love for others your aim. They had peace. They were being built up. But what about the vibe, if you like, or the tone of the communities in that area? And what about the vibe or the tone of my church and your church? I know it's nowhere that I can find in the New Testament that there's a particular piece on vibe, but we all send out some kind of vibe, and churches do too. In the same way that when you go into someone's home, somebody's home may be sterile and rather cold. Another home is friendly and cozy. And the same is true of congregations. And there ought to be a direct correlation, it seems to me, between the work of the Spirit of God in enabling the people of God to grow up into an awareness of who Jesus is and what he means, and then how that expresses itself in their walk and in their talk. Well, we shouldn't be surprised. That's exactly what he tells us. They had peace and, and it was being built up, and then here we go. And they were walking in the fear of the Lord. They were walking in the fear of the Lord. I can tell by the way you walk that you got soul, baby. All right? You tell a lot about a person by the way they walk. That's why the peripatetic nature of it and why the ESV takes us back to walk. The NIV used it in terms of live. But walk is a little better, isn't it? 
And they were walking in the fear of the Lord. They knew their Bibles. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners. That's what we were hearing earlier on. That we need, was it, this, was it in the first address, I think, uh, that, that, that we need to make sure that there is a line between the church and the world. Well, then the congregation needs to understand Psalm 1 is the gateway into it all. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. They knew Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are to be feared. To be feared. Not the terror at the prospect of punishment, a servile fear, but a filial fear, the awe and the reverence before God on account of one's awareness of the mercy of God and the provision of his forgiveness. And when I try and teach this to boys, I, I say to them, did, did, did you ever hear about the boys that went out with some catapults and they decided they would smash a few windows and they began to fire them up at the school building and then one of the boys wasn't joining in? And uh, one of the other boys who'd already been firing them at the windows turned to his friends and he said, Oh, don't worry about Joe. Uh, he, he won't do it. He's just, he's just afraid of what his father will do to him. And Joe said, No, I'm not. I'm afraid of what I will do to my father. A servile fear is a fear of the reach, as it were, of punishment. Filial fear is the fear that deals with all our other fears. Fear him, ye saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. Now, what would it have looked like then for people to be walking in the fear of the Lord? And what will it look like now for a congregation that walks in the fear of the Lord? Well, at least this. There will be humility of heart and there will be boldness of approach to the throne of grace so that there will be the humble posture of heart that will be pervasive in a congregation, but at the same time those people will be bold in going to God because of the assurance they have of His grace, and they will be increasingly bold in going to their friends and neighbors because they have this amazing story to tell, even again as we've rehearsed it today. How would we pick it up? Well, we would hear it in their hymnody. We would hear it in their hymnody. You can tease this out for yourselves, but I think you can tell a tremendous amount about our local congregations, not simply whether they applaud at the end of baptisms, but by the way in which they engage in their praise. Now, this is not a comment about loud praise, quiet praise, new praise, old praise. It's just a comment about tone and the, the mentality. So that, it, that, that those who walk in the fear of the Lord know that when they come together as the, as the company, as the gathered company of the people of God, it begins with God and His glory. It doesn't begin with us and our need. So the whole thing is not immediately horizontalized. The thing has a transcendent element to it. And they're happy to begin. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness and bow down before Him and His glory proclaim with gold of obedience and incense of lowliness. Bow and adore Him. The Lord is His name. It will also be apparent in the way in which a congregation listens to the Word of God being proclaimed. Because actually, 
What matters more is what God has said to us, not what we are saying to him. Right? I think we would agree on that. Unless you happen to be a musician who wants to sing ad nauseum to get everybody in the right mood for listening ad nauseum. But because we sang so much, there's no nauseum left in us at all to do anything other than that. Reverently hearing the word, says Spurgeon, exercises our humility, instructs our faith, irradiates us with joy, inflames us with love, inspires us with zeal, and lifts us up towards heaven. Mark 1, as they walk in the fear of the Lord. Mark 2, as they do so in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. In the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting uh, phrase that actually. Comfortare is the Latin word which means to strengthen greatly. And um, I, I have in my mind a picture from an ancient uh, tapestry, uh, a picture of a king on his horse taking a sword and prodding it into the, 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 the rear of one of his soldiers. And the caption underneath this piece of the tra- tapestry reads, The king comforteth his troops. Well, that seems a very uncomfortable kind of comforting to me, doesn't it? A sword in the rear end. But loved ones, listen, the uncomfortable comfort of the Holy Spirit is what we need. Some of us have grown so comfortable, it would be good for us to get a little uncomfortable. To get out of our, quote, comfort zone. Now, the little structures and strategies that we've created that allow us to feel so incredibly safe. And yet, if we're going to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the endued strength of the Holy Spirit, it's probably going to take us in different directions. Always in concurrence with the Scriptures. Don't get me wrong. But it's a long time that, that since uh, uh, Iverson wrote the little song that is sung so seldom now in my circles, at least, Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me. It's, it's time to sing this again, like every day. How thankful we are for the Gettys and some of the songs they've written. And the one on the Holy Spirit is wonderful too. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new life into my willing soul. Let the presence of the risen Lord come renew my heart and make me whole. And cause your word to come alive in me. Give me faith for what I cannot see. And give me passion for your purity. Holy Spirit, breathe new life in me. They had peace. God worked among them. They were built up. They walked in reverence for God. In the resources of the Holy Spirit. And surprise, surprise, the church was multiplied. Just two little words there after the sentence. It multiplied. Whoa! How did that happen? Whoa! It multiplied. Well, it didn't happen in a vacuum, did it? Now, I'm glad to be here among Southern Baptists because... When I first came to America in 1972, it was to Southern Baptists that I first went. I didn't know that I was going there. I'd never met such a creature. But I was absolutely, I was absolutely delighted with it all. I was in a particular church, and it had a board uh, for the hymns. And then on the other side, it had a board uh, with numbers on it. 
And uh, I quickly realized that the one number on the top was the attendance last Sunday in the, in the big services, and then underneath was the Sunday school. And the, you could go afterwards, if you went on the patio, they gave you orange juice. <laughs> I never heard of such a thing. In Scotland, you're getting nothing for free, I can guarantee you that. <laughs> so, they're not giving anything away at the end of the services. And, uh, and, so, and, and so the whole thing was novel and fantastic to me. But as I began to listen, I discovered that they had a whole lingo all of their own. And it developed over time. I would hear pastors saying to each other, say, uh, how many are you running in Sunday school? <laughs> what, your number's running now? I'm like, running? Then I realized, I said, you know, they must be running. That's what they're doing. Because they're not here. And just to jump on the back of of Mark metaphorically and his comments earlier, does this sound terrible? That on the rolls of, let's just stick with Southern Baptist churches at the moment, because it's easy, it's low-hanging fruit. Um, (laughs) Of all whose names appear on the roll, 5% don't exist. 10% can be found. 25% never attend. 50% never come back to an evening service. 75% are never engaged in any midweek Bible study or prayer. 90% have no family devotions. And 95% never lead another person to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, even allowing for the statistics of that, you know, the challenge hits home, doesn't it? Now, the multiplicatory process of God, which is revealed in the Acts of the Apostles, is a recurring theme. Hence, in all of the statements, in the summary statements, it makes the point at the end of Acts 2, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. He's the one who adds, right? In 6.4, the number of the disciples increased. In 12, it is the Word of God continuing to spread. The same thing again in 1920, uh, the Word of God prevailed mightily. And so you have this ongoing process whereby as the Word spread, the church grew. And when you go all the way to the end of your Bible and you turn to the glorious picture in, in Revelation uh, chapter 7, We're not introduced to a bedraggled wee cluster of folks holding on for dear life and seeking to maintain things, but rather to a multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and the peoples and the languages and standing before the throne and before the Lamb and crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. So what do we know? We know this that every attempt on the part of the evil one ultimately fails. And Christ will have the prize for which he died, namely the inheritance of nations. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. It doesn't always seem so, but it is so. Let me make just 
a small number of observations for you to ponder on your own, and I will, and I will stop. Number one, when God is at work in the membership of a church, the people walk before him in reverence and in the resources of the Holy Spirit. Number two, there is a strong link, it seems, between edification and multiplication. Some of you have adopted children. You remember the process that was involved before people were prepared to give you those children. They took immense care, and so they should. And I think there is a sense in which God is only willing to entrust spiritual babes to spiritual congregations capable and willing to care for them. I wouldn't want to overstate that, but I would say that one of the things that we need to ask ourselves as congregations is whether in the goodness and grace of God, the environment in which we are living is the kind of place that God would like to put more spiritual babies as He brings them to faith in His Son. Thirdly, salvation and church membership clearly go hand in hand. In Acts chapter 2, the Lord did not add them to the congregation without saving them, nor did He save them without adding them. Four, the ongoing activity of evangelism, of multiplication, the resulting multiplication, takes place effectively in a number of ways. But do not overlook the fact that God chooses to use the routine services of your church. Well-conducted, God-honoring, gospel-infused gatherings of the people of God are a neglected arena by many of us for seeing unbelieving people becoming the committed followers of Jesus Christ. So much of our effort has been involved in extra activities, designed activities, and, 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 and uh, uh, you know, unique things, which is fair enough. There's a place for all of that. But if it's to the neglect of the way in which we approach Sunday by Sunday, then we're missing something, I think, of significance. Fifthly, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain, the house of His church, It's God's church. It's His house. And sixthly, we immediately go wrong when our focus in this whole process is on the messenger rather than on the message. That's why Paul has to write to the Corinthians and say to them in chapter 3, I I know you fellows have got your favorites. And uh, golly, if they had their favorites in Corinth, they've definitely got them in Cleveland and in every other place. There's an inevitability about it. And Paul recognizes that. He hasn't set up his own little stall with baseball hats with his name on them and things like that. But he says, he says, what after all is Apollos? He didn't say who. It's the neuter. What after all is Apollos? What after all is Paul? Only servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each their task. So, Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God 
who makes things grow. So why don't you tweet that one? I just found out I'm not anything. Call your wife and let her know the mystery of God's amazing purpose that he deigns to pick up the likes of us at this period in history, in this vast and amazing society in which he set us, so that in the peace that we enjoy, which is vastly different from our brothers and sisters in Iran or in Iraq or in Egypt or wherever else it is, and it may be disruptive, but it's peace in comparison, that in this peace that we might seize the opportunity in our congregations to make sure that our membership is edified, and then that we are walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And who knows, but God might just choose to multiply things all over again. Father, thank you that um, we've had the opportunity of these hours so far throughout the day and yet more in store for us. Thank you for the amazing privilege that it is for us to have the company of one another, the encouragement of each other, and to lay our lives afresh before you, uh, to expose our hearts and minds to the truth of your word, and to pray that you will uh, look upon us in your mercy, that you will find in our hearts uh, such a response of gratitude that will reveal itself in obedience and in faith. Help us in our pastoral ministry not to be heavy-handed and unkind. Help us to be as clear as we can be, as compassionate as Christ. Help us, Lord, to speak with conviction. And then help us, Lord, to nurture those under our care, not driving them from behind, but leading them from the front. Help us to watch our lives and our doctrine closely because we realize that uh, the time passes so quickly and we have only a moment in which to work. And so help us to work while it is day. For we humbly pray, offering ourselves afresh to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.